Because when you find your purpose, you find your power. I wasn't going to leave because that was uh, my dream. People were fascinated by code, by mission, by purpose, by high calling, by something beyond goals, bigger than goals. I mean, this is open source code. It's free. They don't have to pay me a royalty. And it's a really simple way to fund and define your purpose. You can get a board for the first time, walk down the beach and feel the same way as Kenny Slater feels when he paddles out or the greatest surfer in the world, you can feel that same thing. Welcome to the Debunking Your Growth Mindset podcast with Sean McCainbridge. In this podcast, we will unpack practical ways to help you grow and build on your current mindset and challenge old habits so you can see the potential that's within us all and learn how to get out of your own way. Joined here today with Sean Thompson, inspirational individual, Cornwall champion surfer, voted as one of the greatest surfers of all time. He's an author, uh, he's an entrepreneur, he's founded two organisations, he's a father, he's a husband, been through some trials and tribulations in that regard, but he's developed this code. This code is a framework uh, and centred around the power of I will, spoken all over the world on this topic, on this framework. So we're going to unpack that today and really talk about finding your purpose. So there's some interesting takeaways. He's an inspirational individual and I'm really confident that you enjoy the podcast today. So thanks again for joining us. Well, Sean, uh, thanks very much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Um, I want to spend some time today talking about finding your purpose. And uh, I guess just before we go into that, uh, obviously many surfers around the world will know you uh, and your backstory. But just for those that don't, here's a, a quick sort of overview um, for those that uh, aren't uh, familiar with your uh, your story. So you're a former world surfing champion and in doing so mastered some of the most dangerous breaks in the world. Um, and one of the drivers of the Pro Tour as we know it today. Uh, in 2004, you were listed as one of the, the greatest 16 surfers in history. You're an entrepreneur. You've created two popular surf brands, one of which was purchased by a billion-dollar uh, listed company. Uh, you've experienced highs and lows, and one of them being the loss of your son at 15 in a tragic accident. Uh, you've been involved in many community and social endeavors. You're an author. Uh, you've developed a framework called The Code. You're a motivational speaker. And in doing so, you've shared the stage with the likes of uh, Richard Branson, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, sharing some of those fundamental lessons that surfing has taught you and the power of I will. So um, without further ado, I just want to kick off with when did it become clear to you talking about purpose uh, that you wanted to become a professional surfer um, when, you know, I, I think at the time maybe that didn't even exist <laughs> as, as an occupation, as a scenario because the tour it didn't really exist at that point in time. So when did it become clear to you that you wanted to push yourself as far as you could as a surfer? Yeah, well, I can't actually take the credit. I, mean, <laughs> I, was, I loved I loved surfing. I was really passionate about competition, uh, and I really felt it was possible to develop this lifestyle that we loved into a career, into a pursuit, uh, into an endeavor that would ultimately uh, be able to build the life for me. And uh, it, it really... Um, I think happened uh, in, a, in a very short period of time. Rabbit Bartholomew and I were, were great competitors, great rivals, but great friends too. And both of us had this idea that one day it'd be possible to be perhaps uh, a pro surfer. So we had a, we had a really great season in 1975 together uh, in terms of breaking new ground. Uh, Rabbit ultimately wrote about it in, in a wonderful article called Busting Down the Door. But it was a very free particular winter season 
It was a, a season of newness, a season of change, a season of optimism. And Rabbit and I were both pushing the envelope at Sunset Beach, at Hull Eva, at Off the Wall, at Backdoor Pipeline, at Pipeline, with a really, I think, creative new approach. You know, we were the two hot young guys. And, of course, along with Mark Richards as well. But Rabbit was really this visionary. Uh, I think he had this kind of naivete that perhaps uh, I didn't. I mean, I think we were both dreamers. <laughs> but Rabbit uh, really had perhaps a little bit of a, a different outlook. And also he'd come from a much harder background than me. I'd come from a relatively, uh, you know, strong affluent middle-class background. And uh, uh, we, we came to the end of the season and it was uh, 1975 and I was going back to university. I mean, my career was kind of mapped out. I was going to be a pro. I was going to be a professional, but I wasn't <laughs> going to be a professional surfer. I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, that was kind of my path. I'd been studying law and economics. So it was like law, business, uh, accounting. And then, uh, you know, I was going back to university in 1976. And I said to Rabbit, so what are you going to do, pal? We were watching, we were in front of like a booming day at Pipeline. And I'll never forget, he said to me, I'm going to be a pro surfer, mate. <laughs> and then I thought, wow, pro surfer, mate. And uh, that really sparked sort of a thinking in me. And uh, ultimately, it led to um, us, us sort of forming together and, and ultimately competing on the first pro tour and uh, him becoming a world champion in 1978, me becoming a world champion in 1977 and being rivals and also being friends and also helping build it along with Ian Cairns and Peter Townend and Mark Richards, Michael Thompson. And then, um, you know, a few Hawaiian guys at the time who were really behind it, Reno, I would say Reno Abalera being the, being the top gun. And then the administrators at the time, there was Graham Cassidy here in Australia. There was uh, Fred Hemmings and Randy Rarick in, in Hawaii and a guy called Peter Benes in South Africa. So between the, those three sort of administrative pillars and us guys, man, we made it happen. Well, it's uh, an amazing story, amazing journey, and, and, and maybe not without its challenges. Uh, obviously, Hawaii was the epicenter of, of surfing at that moment in time and arguably still is, but uh, I guess as you young hotshots were trying to break into their stomping ground, the Hawaiian stomping ground, you had, in my understanding, you had your life threatened, uh, to which uh, you didn't uh, curtail to those threats. Uh, instead, you bought a gun. And you refuse, refuse to stand down, um, you know, because you were clear on your endeavours, you were clear on what you're trying to achieve. Uh, many people, no doubt, would have chosen the safe and sensible path. Uh, why did you choose to fight for what you believed in and, and how did that play out? Well, I think all of us did at the time. I think Rabbit, uh, you know, got punched out and Ian got punched out and PT got punched out and I got punched out. Mark Richards managed to steer, <laughs> to steer a path of extreme uh, uh, diplomacy. And yes, at, at one time I bought a Remington 12-gauge pump action and I remember sitting there in my board shorts loading 10 shells into it and I wasn't going to leave because that was uh, my dream in the same way it was Rabbit's dream and PT's dream and Ian Cairns. And all of us, you know, we were willing to stand our ground. And it wasn't like we in any way, shape or form disrespected Hawaiian heritage or culture. Uh, we got on so well with the Hawaiian surfers at the time, uh, but we just didn't get along with the gangsters and they didn't get along with us. And their business was selling drugs. Their business was destroying lives and their business still is. And their business was to create this um, uh, power 
uh, on the North Shore and have everyone bow down to them, including including some of the great Hawaiian surfers at the time. And many of these these Hawaiian surfers at the time stood up for us and supported us. And I remember being in a meeting at the time when I'd had my life threatened, I'd been punched out, hit with a bottle, had guys you know, come at me uh, all over an article that had been published in Penthouse magazine in which the article and the journalist had written about this gang, this gang of guys. Uh, I had never said anything bad uh, to disrespect Hawaiian heritage and culture because I, I would never say anything like that because it was absolutely contrary to what I believed. Yuka Hanamoka was was my first hero in surfing. It was my dad's swimming hero. Mm. And, I mean, I only looked up to Eddie Aikau and, uh, you know, all the Hawaiian guys at the time, Jerry Lopez, Larry Bertelman, Jeff Hackman, they were, they were like gods to us. So it was very disappointing when it all came down, but ultimately the Hawaiian surfers stood up for us. People like Barry Kanaipuni and Rina Abalera and Larry Bertelman, the great surfers uh, of the time, like Eddie Aikau had stood up for... for um, for Robert Bartholomew and Ian Cairns two years before the incident that I um, uh, I was involved with. So it was just, we didn't think we were like standing our ground and risking our lives for what we believe in. But I suppose in retrospect, you know, when I look back at it now, we were so young and we were in our 20s and it would have been really easy to like Rabbit or, or, or Ian to jump on a Qantas mm-hmm. flight out of there and me to, you know, jump on a, on a Pan Am flight and get out of there. But we didn't because that was our love. That was our dream. And I think out of that pain grew a lot of uh, a lot of intestinal strength, grew a lot of intellectual strength, grew a lot of fortitude and grew a lot of optimism and hope and persistence and grit and resilience. And, and, and we knew that you don't back down then when you're young. When you're older and stuff happens to you, you, know, you don't back down as well. Yeah, well, I think uh, good on you guys. Obviously, your life would have looked uh, a lot differently if you didn't take on that sort of challenge. And, and just on that quickly, how or why do you think uh, the likes of yourself and Rabbit and those guys represented a threat to, to these guys? Was it the fact that they just wanted to control the patch and you guys represented a, a fragmentation of, of the North Shore? Or, I mean, how did you, you guys represent a threat? You know, certainly uh, in some ways, um, and I think Rabbit will be the first, guy to say that, you know, he was very, uh, you know, he's quite active in the water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> took a lot of waves. <laughs> yeah, and, and sure. sometimes that, that pissed people off. But I was a, I was a gentleman. I didn't take any, I didn't take, I mean, certainly when it was my wave, it was my wave. Um, so it's not like you can point a finger and say it was all because, you know, Rabbit wanted to take a lot of waves yeah. or because Ian Cairns, uh, you know, had a, a big mouth and said, uh, you know, we want to be tops now, just sure. like Matt Young had said many, yeah. many years before. It was more than um, like Hawaiians were sort of winning and then we started winning. And while Hawaiian surfers were sportsmen and they could accept that, Perhaps these gangsters couldn't, and it was all about a power control that, you know, we want to control the power of the North Shore and that the North Shore is the home home of surfing and that you guys are like invaders. And, you know, when you think about it, um, the white man did invade Hawaii. There was an illegal annexation of Hawaii. Hawaiian culture and culture and heritage was threatened. And certainly the Hawaiian population was decimated by the white man's diseases of smallpox, etc. So there was, in some ways, a, um, a scholarly justification 
um, for maybe feeling of, uh, of antagonism because of that, but it wasn't because we disrespected Hawaiian heritage and culture. Understood. Great answer. Talk to us about the code and how this framework exists uh, to assist people find their purpose. How did it come to life and, and how does it guide people in the direction of discovering their purpose? You know, many years ago, a friend of mine who started Surfrider Foundation in 1984, and I was the first ambassador for Surfrider Foundation in 84 when it started. He phoned me up. I was, at the time, number one rank guy in the world. And his name was Glenn Henning. He said, Sean, you know, we want to start this new organization. We'd love you to represent the organization. And I said, sure, man, I'll even write your first ad copy and I'll be on your first poster. And, and I read Do a Good Turn. And it was a picture of me doing a bottom turn of Pipeline. And uh, when I wrote those words, you know, they're very simple. But ultimately, I think they were very powerful and they were like a kind of a guidepost for me, do a good turn. Because my surfing was based on fundamental power. Uh, the turn is the fundamental maneuver in surfing. And, and when I think back, do a good turn associated with Surfrider Foundation, the first surfing environmental organization. In res- retrospect, maybe that was a turning point for me. And also, in a metaphorical sense, you know, turn is a change of direction. So I, I, I was involved with Surfrider Foundation since its inception. I've been on the board a number of times and a big supporter. And then the same guy, Glenn Henning, phoned me uh, after I moved to the United States in the 90s and uh, said to me, Sean, your adopted home break of Rincon uh, has a severe environmental challenge and I want to do something about it and I want your help. He said, I'm bringing a group of kids to the beach and I want you to give them something to activate the environmental consciousness, to get them thinking about how we can help bring home with this environmental challenge. It was simple. All the homeowners were connected up to septics. When it rained, the septics overflowed and polluted the ocean. So we had to get everyone connected up to, to the sewer line. And he thought he could use kids to highlight the problem to the media because he was going to invite media to the beach and invite kids to the beach and invite local government activists to the beach. And he said, Sean, give him something. Just give him something. You've got a $100 budget. Give him something to uh, spark their awareness. So at the time, like I thought, like, what can I do for 100 bucks? Like, what can I give 100 kids? So I went home and I, and I just wrote 12 lines, uh, every line beginning with our will, and uh, I wrote 12 lines of commitment, 12 lines of the essential lessons that surfing had taught me about life in metaphor. And I'll always paddle back out. I'll never turn my back on the ocean. I'll realize that all surfers are joined by one ocean. I'll take the drop with commitment. Uh, just simple concepts. I'll honor the sport of kings. And uh, I printed them up in a little plastic card and I printed up 100 and gave them to the kids. And <clears throat> kids loved them. And it turned into like a groundswell. You know, groundswell. In <laughs> fact, Glenn's organization was called Groundswell Society, his second organization after Surf Rider. And ultimately, we solved the problem. I mean, the cards just helped one part of the solution to the problem in that they activated some consciousness. So the homeowners got connected to the Sulan, we solved the problem. But the cards kept growing like a wave. More kids wanted them, more parents wanted them. I started speaking 
at different groups about a code because people were fascinated by a code, by mission, by purpose, by high calling, by something beyond goals, by something bigger than goals, by something that represented integrity, morality, uh, and represented connectivity. But at the time, I didn't think of it as purpose. I just thought of it as a code. At one of the events that Glenn organized for his organization, Groundswell Society, I met a, a guy who was a professor of French literature. And after my lecture, his wife had prodded him. I only found out this last week. His wife was a professor of English. He was a professor of French literature. I said, why don't you go and talk to Sean about a book? So he walks down and says, hey, Sean, I think this would make a good book. The code is 12 lines, mate. You've got 12 chapters. You've got 12 stories. I said, no, well, I've never written a book. And he said, well, I've never written a book, but I'm a professor of French literature. I know <laughs> a lot of our books. So, you know, we collaborated together and we did my first book called Surface Code. It was popular. People loved it. And then um, I'm sitting out at Rincon again, waiting for my wave with my 300 best mates. And this guy paddles up to me. He says, Sean, my name's Gordon Sitchi. I'm a headmaster. I'd like you to come and talk at my school about your new book, about the code, about Surface Code. So I went down to the school, it was a small school, 80 kids. And uh, when I was chatting them, I said, you know, Surface Code's my code. I wrote it. I wrote it in 30 minutes, 12 lines. Every line begins with, I will. It's 105 words. I said, what about your code? Why don't you write your code? Why don't you write your purpose? And then I realized that the code was something bigger than what I'd written. I realized maybe it's a calling for many people to write their own codes. So these kids wrote their, their codes. So I got back nearly a thousand lines, 80 kids times 12, 960. And the very first line I got back was from a, a young girl, Elena Alcera, 13 years old. I will always be myself. And I just lost my son six months before. And those words just really touched me. And then all the other beautiful words of the, of the children um, and I thought, wow, this is so inspirational that, that through this little model, through this little mechanism, people are able to find a purpose. Because if you ask someone, like, what's your purpose? It's very hard. But if you say, why don't you write your code? 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. And I've discovered over the years and through academic research, I went back to grad school to study influence and inspiration. I did the hard yards back going back to university after many years. In fact, I think I was the oldest student in the whole school. When I say oldest student, I'm talking older than the faculty. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I really looked into influence and inspiration and how you can collectivize will, um, how can you get people following a positive path. You know, like, what's wrong in the world? Like, why is there disengagement? Why is there all this disunity and there's some fundamental societal problems, and a lot of it is related to powerlessness, to a feeling of despair and hopelessness and, and powerlessness. So what about, is there a way to help people find their purpose? Because when you find your purpose, you find your power. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I found that, wow, this little mechanism of people writing their code is really a way to find their power and to find their purpose. And then, I don't know how it happened, but I started getting people 
not just to write their codes, but to share their codes in a room. So they would, after they've written it, and I started with, with, with corporate groups as a way to connect people to one another because disengagement's a big problem in the corporate world. I mean, Gallup released a poll and 75% of employees worldwide are disengaged. So I'm going, well, well now this code is not only a way to find and define your purpose, but it's a way to commit to a positive wave, next wave, and it's a way to connect people together at a very deeply emotional level. So I got people to write the codes together collectively, write it down in hand. So that whole process of writing something in hand, old school, it's very different to like tapping it out, bits and bytes, when you write it old school. And then one at a time people get up and they share it and read it out loud, like they Martin Luther King or they Nelson Mandela or they Winston Churchill. Everyone reads it differently, but everyone reads it with man power and passion and purpose. And everyone writes poetry. And then I sort of modified it a little bit further and I found that people read their 12 lines and they're important. And inside those 12 lines, if you ask them to pick one line, just one, one, just one, they're like most resonant. Maybe it's not their best, maybe it's not their most important, but it's just the one line they want to pick on that particular day. And you write that on a board and if you have 40 people in the room, you end up with 40 lines of code. Yeah. And that is like a Persian carpet. Every line is like a thread, and every thread is a story, and they all combine together in some, into something magnificent. And when I see this process, and some academics have studied this process, uh, some people have called, academics have called this the most transformational process they've ever seen, and they've studied every single method. And I'm saying, it's not my method. It's just this simple code that is such a useful tool. And I say this code, and this is open source code. It's free for anyone to use. They don't have to pay me a royalty. They don't have to pay one damn cent. 12 lines, every line begins with how well. And it's a really simple way to find and define your purpose. So what is purpose? Purpose is power. Purpose is a higher calling. And... To me, purpose has five elements. And it's a simple acronym, AIM AT. A-I-M AT. It's kind of like a goal, but it's not a goal. Because a goal is specific, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time sensitive. That's not what purpose is. Purpose is A for aspirational, R for inspirational, M for moral. Goals aren't moral. Purpose is moral. A is for authentic. That's who you are, man. People. People stand up and read their codes, they cry. I'm talking big, gnarly business guys. I'm talking <laughs> radical construction dudes that have got muscles on muscles on muscles. I'm talking about women who you look at them and they have this tough exterior and boom, they break down and they reveal themselves to their peers, to their teams. It just has this amazing impact of people, this sharing of, of your best self. That's what the psychologists call it your best self. You find your best self, you share your best self, and then you collectivize it and you create this amazing mural, this amazing Persian carpet of poetry and everyone sees it and is inspired by it. And then a lot of businesses will create a graphic out of it and they'll put it up in the lobby. So that is a collectivization of the company's culture. 
that is a collectivization of the company's purpose. That's not the same old bullshit that you read about integrity, mm. morality, customer service. Yes, those are all great things. But it's just a word. When you add commitment and mission and purpose, it just makes it so much more profound than just another word that you gloss over. But when you look at that and you know that someone wrote that, it's from someone's heart, and that is a mosaic of, of, of meaning, it's pretty special. And, and when I do this process with you know the poorest schools in the world, the poshest schools in the world, the biggest companies in the world, small companies, successful companies, struggling companies, uh, big universities, small universities, religious groups, Every time the results are the same, I say, I've got the best job in the world. <laughs> I'm going to jump in there. And what, what happens, you know, from a psychological point of view, you, you see some people and they discover or find their purpose, right? And you see them uh, before and you see them after and people sort of make the comment, you seem like a different person because you've got a different energy about you, you seem vibrant, you see alive once they've discovered that. I mean, what's happening from a neurology point of view? Have you sort of gone into... You know, I don't know what's What does it unlock? I don't know what's happening from a neuroscience mm. point of view. Mm. But I'll tell you this. Mm. Our lives are a series of small and big decisions. And what underlines those decisions is our attitude and our purpose. Our attitude is how we feel about something. And you can instantaneously change how you feel about something. Instantaneously. You know, you can read Viktor Frankl's book. It's one of the greatest books ever written, Man's Search for Meaning. And he talks about how how attitude is a fundamental choice in life, that everything can be taken away from you, but the concept where your attitude. So attitude is something that one can change absolutely immediately. And attitude and purpose are so fundamentally aligned. Attitude is how we feel about something. Purpose is what we're going to do about something. So they are inextricably linked. And that decision, what underlies that decision is our attitude and what underlies that decision is our purpose. And my beautiful son was 15 and a half and he made a bad decision. And maybe he'd been pushed into this decision to play this dangerous game called the choking game at school or there was some sort of peer pressure involved. I'll, I'll never know, but it was, a, it was a choice my son made at that moment in time. And when I went back to grad school, I researched this this choice, like why do people make the choices they make? And do you know that the biggest social problem in the world is choice, is bad choice? I don't know the statistics for Australia, but in the United States, 2.4 million people die every year from a variety of different causes. That's the death rate. But out of that, 1 million people, 1 million people die from poor choice. They die from a bad personal decision. They decide to eat shit food and ultimately die from obesity and heart disease and all the cascading effects that come from that. They smoke, they drink, they use illicit drugs, they get into a car when they're drunk. There's many different causes for death from personal choice. But one million people, that's straight from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, data, a professor who um, I've been in touch with at Duke University has analyzed the data, one million people. So if you can in some way fundamentally change that choice, if you can show people that they're not powerless to keep drinking, to keep doping, 
to keep eating, they do have the power. And they have the power to instantly make a change. In the same way that Viktor Frankl, when he was in Auschwitz in a concentration camp, he saw people making the choice to live or die. On a daily basis, they would lie on their bed and go, I'm out. Or they wouldn't lie on their bed and they'd stay alive like, like he did. So we have this choice and this choice is very much related to decisions. So in my own little way, I like to think that the code can give you your power. And when you've got your power, you can make a positive decision. Fantastic, fantastic answer. I want to pivot the conversation now towards uh, the ocean. Now, for me, you know, stressful life, lots going on, all the rest of it, but when you get in the ocean, it's sort of just, it pushes to the side. You've got this clarity, you've got this relaxation, you've got this peace. Uh, what's your take on what the ocean does for people? Well, there have been a lot of psychological studies lately on what happens <laughs> with, with us uh, and connectivity to nature. And, of course, a lot of these studies just prove what we all know as surfers, that surfing makes your life better, that when you paddle out and you paddle out towards that big open horizon under that big dome sky, your life's better because you're leaving all the troubles behind you and for that moment you're connected to yourself you're connected to the ocean, uh, and you have this feeling of stillness. You have this feeling of expectancy. You have this physicality. You have this sensation of floating. And you have the sensation of being on a journey, and you don't really know where you're going to take it. So every time you paddle out as a surfer, there's this myth archetype. You're going on a hero's journey. For all of our surfers, and, you know, we as surfers, we see life differently. It's just the way it is. We don't see life like a snowboarder. We don't see life like a competitive cyclist as a swimmer. We, we do, we do. And it's not because there's any elitism associated with what you do, because you can get aboard for the first time and walk down the beach and feel the same way as Kelly Slater feels when he paddles out or or Mark Richards, or Robert Bartholomew, or Philippe Toledo, or the greatest surfer in the world, you can feel that same thing. The ocean has this amazing connective power. So, when I speak to the poorest schools in the world, kids that have never seen the sea, kids that have never seen surfing, when I speak about surfing, and I share video about surfing, they become enthralled. And the biggest companies in the world want to use the surfing allure to sell products like Toyota and Seiko and Rolex and all these different brands that want to align with surfing because it just represents freedom and connectivity. So surfing in itself has unbelievable power, unbelievable power for transformation. I spoke to kids yesterday. A friend just took me to Bondi because he wanted me to see his nephew surfing and it happened to be Bondi Beach Surfing Championships and they asked me to give away these little trophies to these little grommets. They were all about 10 years old. And I could just see this fever and I could see the stoke in their eyes. And, and I said to them, you want power? They say, yeah, we want power. I will. It was power. I yeah. went and I got them all chanting. <laughs> I will. It was power. And it was so cool to see that, just that enthusiasm and love and stoke and energy in these kids' eyes. And these kids, even at 10 years old, I think have been transformed by surfing. And, and I think, you know, the more... People say, ah, surfing's getting so crowded, surfing's getting so crowded, the water's getting... I think the more people we can get in the water, sure, you know, we're hoping that they're going to 
paddle out in a relatively civilized fashion and take it in turn, I think it can make the world a better place, this connectivity to nature, this connectivity to to this wonderful spirit that surfing gives us. And I'm just so thankful to have been a surfer, to have experienced that, and to be a, still be a surfer. You know, I'm not in, in I've been in the pro thing for, uh, for many, many years now, for decades, but I still get the same feeling of stoke out of surfing that I did so many years ago when I was, you know, one of the top guys. Absolutely. And while we're on that notion of stoke, describe what that is because uh, I was saying before the podcast, my uh, young kids are now getting into to surfing, even my wife, and uh, the smile that they give me when they get off one of their first decent waves is like a smile I've never seen before. It's this powerful, amazing, deep smile, uh, and it's sort of hard to describe. So for those people that maybe uh, aren't familiar with that term, surfers called stoke, what is that? I think it's part euphoria. Yeah. It's part personal power. It's part excitement, part adrenaline, part exhilaration. It's all of those, but it's ours. It's surfing. Yeah. And it's not a kook, like, hackney term. Stoke is what us surfers own, and it's the only word in the world that describes that feeling when you stand up on a wave for the first time or the last time, that feeling of just connectivity and love and passion and energy. Man, I'm stoked. And that's how I try to ride through life, man. I try to ride through life stoked. Absolutely. Now, I think that's a great uh, great explanation. And like, uh, like you, I hope uh, more people uh, sense that and feel that. And I've had some friends in business in their sort of mid to late 30s pick up surfing for the first time and they just love it. It gives them this escape, gives them this freedom, uh, a sense of relaxation, and particularly when they can sort of do that with their kids or their family, I think it's just awesome, you know. So it's not certainly not something that needs to be always picked up as a as a, as a young person. I think you know, people can pick it up, arguably, you know, at any point in time in life. Yeah. Um, so it's it's good. In your book, you allude to the fact that uh, my interpretation of it is surfing can be a metaphor for life, and you quote I will. Um, I'll touch on is surfing's all about uncertainty, that feeling of taking a risk. I take that leap of faith every time I jump into the ocean. And I think that's true of life and the many decisions we make, often taking risk, trusting this will result in upside. Uh, can you share any personal uh, examples of that where you've you know, taken that risk or made that decision, as you said before, and what that's become? Um, I don't know if you know it's appropriate to touch on, but the one in the book that resonates for me and, and I think a very important one for my, my kids and time is maybe uh, early on in the North Shore when you had a roommate uh, that was uh, making certain choices, encouraged you to indulge in, in certain choices uh, in terms of the, the drug taking. And you were confronted as a young person trying to fit in in the North Shore and make a name. I mean, that was a pretty powerful choice at the time. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when that young girl wrote, when I asked at school, and I kept school to write their codes, and the first one that came back from that young girl, um, I'll be myself, and it was like an anthem for youth. It was such a powerful statement, and I just think back to when, when I was on the North Shore as a young guy, you know, trying to like make my way and staying with a staying with a guy who offered me heroin. I was eighteen or nineteen years old. 
And I'm staying there. I mean, I was staying with the Ghani's family. And, you know, there's that, mm, well, should I just go along with flow or should I be myself? And, you know, you're going to make that decision so, so quickly. And now I say to young people, you're going to be faced with that decision. It's going to be life and death. Uh, and maybe you don't quite realize it at the time. Uh, and if it's an important decision, you, you just need to think twice, you know. And, and I get thousands of kids chanting, think twice. What's going to happen when you know, that decision comes your way when you're stuck on that railroad track and that train's coming down at you and you're trying to make the decision, what you're going to do? And I say, just think twice, just think twice. And, um, you know, think twice, it might save your life. So I think there is a moment there where you have to be introspective and think twice about the risk. But also that is counterbalanced with sometimes the risk that you have to take in order to achieve greatness. And yes, I took risks, but I took calculated risks. So introspection was always an aspect of the risk that I took. I paddled out the Banzai pipeline on a board I'd never ridden before and I just had to commit to the takeoff. And I didn't really know how that board was going to go because it was a crazy board with all this rocker and dropped into the wave and kind of changed the way pipeline was ridden. Yes, I took a risk, but I knew I was fit. I was strong. I could hold my breath for four and a half minutes. I could paddle faster than anyone in the world. I could swim faster than any surfer in the world. I I mitigated that, that risk, both with, you know, physical attributes, with, Uh, I think, mental power. So there is that counterbalance with risk, but I think kids also have to use that instinct. And I called my first surfing brand Instinct because the best moments in surfing happen when you're inside the tube and you're operating on instinct. And sometimes, you know, your instinct tells you what's right. Um, Your instinct tells you to take that drop even though it's low tide because you know you're going to make it. Um, and your instinct tells you, man, I'm not going to take a puff of that heroin pop because it's just not the right thing to do. So sometimes you have to follow that, um, and that can help you deal with the risk and uncertainty. Absolutely. Well, two clear outcomes uh, from my understanding and that decision. You went on to become a world champion, and unfortunately for the other individual, he had an overdose. Yeah. Yeah, there's not too much that has come out of drugs other than great music. Yeah, and he was, a, I understand he was a competent, oh, he was uh, a great, gifted surfer he, also. Yeah, he was, a, he was a great, you know, he's a great surfer, as good as, I mean, as good as I was, I think. Certainly tremendous talent, and, and it was just sad that he made the wrong decision. But there's these pressures on young people, just like there was a pressure on my beautiful son. And I wasn't there, and I... And as parents, we can't be there 24-7. And we just hope that, you know, we can instill in our young people that power and confidence, uh, you know, not to make a stupid decision. And yes, when you're young, you do risky stuff. And and uh, I had to live with that terrible loss that my boy made one mistake. And when I tell people, when I tell kids, why do you think I'm talking to you? I say, why do you think I'm talking to you? Well, I'll tell you why I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you because... In 2006, on the 24th of April, I got a phone call and my boy was dead and he made a bad decision just like you can make a bad decision. So your decisions are incredibly important. So here's a way to find some power to help you make the right decision. I will. It's power. Write your code. Your code can help you navigate a path through life. 
Absolutely. And I think that's a great transition to the next question. Uh, I think as parents, we want to help our kids discover their purpose, their passion, uh, to have a great life. How have you helped your, your young son, Luke, in that journey? He's nine years old now, as we talked about before. He's, he's almost the exact same age as my daughter, Sophie. How are you helping a nine-year-old, you know, write his code or find his passion? You know, with my boy and having the privilege and to be a dad again and having a second chance, it's about the time, man. Mm, yeah. It's yeah. about the time you spend. Oh, Daddy, come <laughs> play with me. I've got so much work to do. Oh, Daddy, come play with me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that as parents, I think the most important thing we can do for our children is, is to spend time with them. Because we only got one go around, man. I know as a dad that, you know, maybe there was times when Matthew asked me to play and I couldn't. Yeah. I was too busy chasing profit, sales, and growth. I wanted to grow my company and I couldn't take him surfing because the surf was really good and I wanted to go surfing. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you go, maybe in the next time yeah. when, you know, when Luke wants to do something, I go, okay. <laughs> okay. And, yeah. uh, and, and I think that is... Uh, that's just the path I follow now. And certainly him and my wife, you know, they've written their, their, their codes uh, down yeah. and it's been fun for them and it's a fun process. Uh, and he knows about my books and taking him surfing a number of times. He's not a stokey. <laughs> I can't push him too hard, but he's into tennis and he's into golf and he cool. and, and sometimes he loves to surf with his his dad. But I'm just so grateful that I've, you know, I've got another chance at being a dad again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, cool answer. And I think... Uh, Maybe people realise that way too late in life and they don't get that second chance. So I think it's really powerful that you've grappled that and uh, you're exercising that because, like you say, it's a, life's a series of choices. Um, I guess the last question I want to throw at you uh, may be a, a bit of a reflective one. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you pass on to that young teenager that landed on the North Shore with this dream? What, what advice would you pass on if you could write a letter to that young chap? Well, the first one is don't get interviewed by Penthouse Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Brings unwanted attention. <laughs> um, you know, when I do this process with so many thousands and thousands of people, a lot of people write. I mean, everyone writes so much beautiful, different stuff. And a lot of people write, I will be present. A lot of people write, I will be present. And... A lot of people realize that life is fleeting and that sometimes we're f so focused on the next thing that we're not focused on the thing, which is right now, right in front of us. And I was always ambitious and always wanted to win the next contest. And, and I maybe would have said, maybe just enjoy the ride a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's funny you say that because Richie McCaw, I know that you follow rugby being a South African, yeah. he said the exact same thing. He said, uh, I, I uh, and his words was sort of more along the lines of, I wish I enjoyed that journey just a little bit more because uh, <laughs> he was always the, the next cup, the yeah. next thing, the next game that's a, that's rather than being present. And, and I think he missed some of those moments as things he could have savoured and enjoyed rather than always looking forward. Yeah. You know, so it's exactly the same. Yeah, it's interesting. As an athlete, you always look for that. Next wind, yeah. that next wave, that next yeah. 
that next uh, that next moment. So it's almost being conscious of being grateful of the things you achieve daily on the journey to achieve the world championship or the world cup or whatever it is that you're going for, yeah. your goal. It's and that daily reflection on on progress or wins. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't have any regrets about the path I followed, the decisions I took. I mean, I always tried to do a good turn throughout my career. I always tried to give back to surfing because surfing gave me so much. And I still do. I still try to give back to surfing. I still try to give back to the community because the community and, and life's been good to me. And we all have that, I think, that responsibility of, um, of reciprocity. And what I've found through the trials I've, I've had to endure through suffering, through losing my, my beautiful boy, and that is when you help others, you help yourself more. If you want to heal, you've been through tragedy, you've had loss, you want to heal, help someone else. You want to heal, help someone else. And certainly that is what I've found. And every time I tell my story about losing Matthew and the wonderful moments that I had with Matthew inside the Sacred Story Circle and speaking mm. to him in spirit language, it takes me back to that time and I can re-enjoy that time and I can remember him and I can give someone some inspiration to help them in their healing process and that helps me in my healing process. So I talk about the sacred story circle that my son developed and it is a sacred story circle and the stories that I tell keep moving in this circle and they keep helping others and helping me and helping others and helping me. And it's just this wonderful sort of moment of never-ending help and connectivity. Now, well, I think uh, it's a fantastic response and uh, I've really enjoyed today, mate. And I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to share some of those things. And I think, no, I don't think, I know that you're well on your way to leaving a great legacy. And I think that's all anyone wants to do in life, but you're paving a wonderful path you've done some incredible stuff and i've got no doubt there's some amazing stuff in front of you so thanks for the inspirational podcast today and sharing those things so authentically and yeah it's been fantastic to to meet you and, and understand your story and read your book and keep doing what you do it's amazing stuff so thank you no thank you and and to you know anyone that's that's listening to the podcast get together with your family or get together with your team at work and fill out a sheet of paper all of you and together write your 12 lines every line begins with that world and write it in 20 or 30 minutes and share it between you. And within that sharing process is great power, it's great fun, and there's great connectivity there. And uh, I'm hoping you do it because in that little code is great power and within that you can help you find a path. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Cheers. Sean. Appreciate it. Thank you. I trust that everyone's inspired and taken a lot from the podcast with Sean. If you wish to find out more, and we'll have this in the show notes, his book, The Code, The Power of I Will, is super interesting, super simple, and there's 12 chapters on the 12 principles of his code. So tune in for that or or look into that for further information. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you have anyone else in your network that might benefit from this, please feel free to uh, share the content. And of course, subscribe or like uh, the material that we're putting out. It'll really help us sort of build the network and share some of these key principles and things. So thanks again for joining us.